1 John chapter 2. Now, as we've been going through this letter that John wrote to Christians so many years ago, we've been seeing that the themes and the message that he deals with uh, isn't an old theme. It's a theme for us right now today. John's been speaking to us about relationship. Relationship with God, but also the relationships that we have with one another. And he's speaking from that frame of reference to remind us that the things that matter the very most aren't things at all. They're the relationships that God has given us. The relationship that we have with him and the relationships that he's given us among one another. And John's been telling us about how to have a true relationship with God and the importance of the relationships that we have one with another. He's also been telling us about the things that can come and and poison our relationship with God. Last week we saw in this remarkable passage, verses 15, 16, and 17 of 1 John chapter 2, we saw how worldliness or a love for the world can just destroy our relationship with God. But now this week, John is going to speak to us about an another attack that can come upon our relationship with God. And it's the danger and the attack that comes from false religion. Notice this in verse 18 of 1 John chapter 2. He says, Little children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might be made manifest that none of them were of us. I think one of the things we're struck of right away when we take a look at verse 18 is we see that John declares something that it's the last hour. John lived in the constant expectancy of Jesus' return. And I believe that's how God wants all of us to live also. Jesus left this earth telling us to watch and to be ready for his return. But this opens up a whole arena of thinking and of issues from the Bible that many people feel uncomfortable with. You see, what we're talking about is the phenomenon in the Bible known as prophecy, where there are situations where God tells us beforehand what's going to happen in the future. Now, some people believe that these passages just aren't for today, and somehow they had some ancient fulfillment, but the plain and simple, straightforward meaning of the Bible is that God tells us in certain situations and in certain circumstances what's going to happen in the future. Now, he did this thousands of years ago before the coming of Jesus Christ. Do you understand that before Jesus, hundreds of years before Jesus ever appeared on this earth, that there were hundreds of prophecies that described his first coming? The Bible said that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, and Jesus was born in Bethlehem. The prophets hundreds of years before the time of Jesus said that the Messiah would come from Nazareth, and he came from Nazareth. They said he would come out of Egypt, and he came out of Egypt, which all seemed to be contradictory prophecies, but they were all perfectly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. They described the healing ministry of Jesus. They described the uh, holiness of Jesus. They described his sinless character. They described his death on the cross, even down to the point of the nails piercing through his hands. My friends, there are hundreds of prophecies having to do with the first coming of Jesus that were perfectly fulfilled in him. Now, if the Bible speaks with such accuracy in a prophetic way about the first coming of Jesus should we not expect that it would also speak to us with the same kind of accuracy about the second coming of Jesus? And that's exactly what we find throughout the Bible. 
And what we have before us this morning is a passage that touches on some of these prophetic themes. Now, many people, when they start talking about this aspect of biblical truth, they start to feel uncomfortable or they raise an exception, not an exception, an objection. They say, now wait a minute, Pastor. I read right in front of me, right here in verse 18, that John said that it was the last hour. Well, if it was the last hour for John, what is it for us today? They say, see, you Christians are just deluded. John thought it was the last hour, and that was almost 2,000 years ago. And 100 years ago, people thought it was the last hour, and 400 years ago, they thought it was the last hour, and you guys are just crazy. I would say we're not crazy. We're not crazy for a few reasons. First of all, I think we're doing exactly what Jesus wanted us to do, in that we're living with this sense of constant expectation of the return of Jesus Christ. This is how Jesus wants us to live. See, my friends, ever since Jesus ascended up into heaven and sent the Holy Spirit down to the church, Christians have lived in excited expectancy of of his return. And that's exactly how Jesus wants us to be. It's right for us to say it's the last hour. It's right for us to live with that kind of anticipation. But my friends, I think also we have even more reason to believe that it is indeed the last hour. You see, the Bible describes for us certain conditions in the world. Certain political conditions, certain economic conditions, certain social conditions that will characterize the world at the return of Jesus Christ. And as we take a look at our world today, we see that the world is perfectly primed for the return of Jesus. And somebody may say, well, how do you know that he's going to return? So I don't know for certain, but I will tell you this, that if Jesus were to delay his coming for a hundred or 200 years, which I don't think he will, but if he were to do that, then he will have to recreate the same kind of conditions in the world that we see right now, because it's so remarkable to see how the conditions in the world today match up with what the Bible said it would be in the very last times. My friends, I'm just trying to tell you that if John said it's the last hour, then we're in the last minutes. We're in the last seconds. And we have every reason to believe that Jesus Christ is coming soon. No, I'm not a date setter. I'm not going to say, well, within 10 years, within 5 years, within 2 years. The Bible says we shouldn't do that, and that we shouldn't be obsessed with it. I will tell you that Jesus Christ is coming soon, and every one of you should live with that hope within you. Some of you may be kind of burned on that. You may say, listen, David, I remember when I was a Christian 10 years ago. I was so excited about the return of Jesus Christ. I was so pumped up. I knew he was coming. And I just, I lived, I woke up every morning and said, is today the day, Lord? Is today the day, Lord? And that was 10 years ago and he still hasn't come. What's wrong with the Lord? I was so excited then and he didn't come. Well, can I just ask you a question right now? How many people in this room are thankful that the Lord didn't come five years ago? A whole bunch of you, right? There's a lot of you thankful that the Lord didn't come a year ago or six months ago. It's God's mercy that is withholding that date. My friends, he will not withhold it forever. And there's a time when Jesus Christ is going to come back to this earth first to take his bride, his church, back up into heaven with him, and then to come to rule and reign on planet earth. Well, now John speaks about some issues relevant to that. And I know you picked it up. You, You saw it, didn't you, there in verse 18? That word jumped out at you. He says, little children, it's the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. You're Antichrist? You say, I've seen the movie. I know what that's all about. You know, some man with evil just dripping off of him. And he walks around, he looks in the mirror, and there's no reflection. 
and he leads and he walks and it's bright sunny day, but there's no shadow behind him. There's just evil all over him. You know, if you lifted up his hair, there'd be 666 on his forehead. (laughs) Everything he touches just turns to evil. I know what this guy is. Friends, I, I wonder if you really do know biblically what the Antichrist is all about. Let's just consider the word, first of all, Antichrist. Now, I know you say, I know what it means to be anti-something. It means to be against something. If a person says they're anti-abortion, it means they're against abortion. If it's anti-this, anti anti-Christ, it means you're against Christ. But I want you to understand something about the original Greek language, the language that the New Testament was originally written in. Anti couldn't only mean in opposition to or the opposite of. It could also mean instead of. Now, I think most people have focused on the idea of the Antichrist being the opposite Jesus. And this has made them think that the Antichrist will appear as a supremely evil person. In other words, as much as Jesus went around doing good, the Antichrist will go around doing bad. As much as Jesus' character and personality was beautiful and attractive, the character and the personality of the Antichrist will be ugly and repulsive. As much as Jesus spoke only truth, the Antichrist will speak only lies. I mean, he's the opposite Jesus, isn't he? Well, I don't think that's the emphasis of this term, Antichrist. Instead of the emphasis being on the opposite Jesus, I think the emphasis is on the instead of Jesus. He's the replacement Jesus. The Antichrist will look wonderful, charming, and successful. He will be the ultimate winner. He's going to appear as an angel of light, and the world will be hailing him as a Messiah. My friends, in the Western, he'll be the guy wearing the white hat, not the black hat. He'll look like the good guy. Some people have wondered if this Antichrist will be an individual or if he'll be a political system. This is really a small distinction because in in some senses he's both a person and a system. Although I do believe there will be definitely, according to the Bible, one individual who is known, or at least biblically identified as, the Antichrist. Yet he will also have a vast political and social system in his toe. And in some ways, one man can stand for a system. I mean, when you're talking about Adolf Hitler... You're talking about Nazi Germany of the 1930s and 40s. When you talk about Nazi Germany of the 1930s and 40s, you're talking about Adolf Hitler. The two ideas are interchangeable. The Antichrist and his system, the Bible tells us, will hold sway over this world in the last days. Now some people ask, and this is a common question people have about the Antichrist, is is this man alive on the earth today? Is he out there somewhere? Well, if you were to ask me, is the Antichrist alive on the earth today? I would say, I think so. Because I think we're that close to the end. I mean, I think that that the time is ripe for the raising up of this man. That the political and social and economic scene is laid. and, And as soon as God declares that now's the time, this man will be revealed. So I believe he's out there. I can't say I know that with absolute certainty. And I'm always very suspicious and... It's almost laughable, the attempts that many people make to try to make some kind of identification. Remember when uh, uh, Henry Kissinger was off doing all his global things? Well, Kissinger's the Antichrist! And then it was Gorbachev, right? Remember the red spots on his forehead? Everybody knew that if you wiped those off, it would be 666 underneath it. (laughs) A lot of people try to do numbers games where they try to make numbers fit in with 666. 
you know, they try to add up letters in the name. And, you know, if you're creative enough, you can make anything say that. Matter of fact, I received something over an email a, a short time ago where it laid out, and to me, the proof was conclusive that Barney the dinosaur was the Antichrist. <laughs> and friends, that's evil right there. I mean, because what you did was you just took the phrase cute purple dinosaur, uh, transliterated into Latin characters, and took out all the consonants and just left the vowels and added them together and added up to 666. See, it's evidence right there. Well, the whole point is, is if you're just creative enough and do enough gymnastics with the figures, you can make anybody, you can make Donald Duck's name to equal 666. My friends, I believe that despite all that kind of frivolous thing that goes on with the 666 and with the numbers, I think the Antichrist, in my estimation, is alive today and he's just not revealed. But don't look for a guy that has evil dripping off of him. Matter of fact, I think it's entirely likely that uh, if the Antichrist is on planet Earth today, that he doesn't even know his destiny. That he's just a man consumed with a vision. He's just a successful man who wants to change the world for good. I will tell you something very interesting about this number 666, which in the book of Revelation is giving a sort of an identifying marker for this man, the number of his name. Even though the Bible doesn't tell us how to identify him by the number of that name, there is only one other place in the entire Bible where this number 666 comes up in connection with an individual, and that individual is the King Solomon. Solomon received as yearly wages 666 talents of silver. And if there's any connection with any person in the Bible with this number 666, it's King Solomon. Now what might that possibly tell us about this man, the Antichrist? I will tell you this, is if you take a look at the life of Solomon, you learn one thing about him. He was a good man gone bad. And perhaps that'll be the story with the Antichrist. Perhaps now he's just an idealistic young man making his way in government or in the economic world or in the social world. Who knows? My friends, I think the time for his revealing is not far off. Now there is a distinction that John makes for us in our text that we need to pay attention to in verse 18. He says, Little children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming... Even now, many antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. John here makes a distinction between the antichrist with a capital A and the antichrist with a small a. In other words, there is an individual coming known as the antichrist, but there are many antichrists. There is a spirit of antichrist, so to speak. And the spirit of antichrist will one day find its ultimate fulfillment in an individual known as the antichrist. The world still waits to see the ultimate revealing of this Antichrist. But there are little previews of this man and his mission to come. These are the Antichrist with the little a. But by seeing this multiplication of these imitation Jesuses, of these other ways to salvation, of these other ways that people can be saved, or, or this, this false gospel or false salvation, this indicates for us that it is the last hour. You saw that in verse 18. He says, by this we know that it is the last hour. And my friends, if that were true in John's day, how much more in our own? Where we see a multiplication of false gospels and, and uh, false Christs and invitations for people to come and find salvation another way. Yet even though the spirit of Antichrist is present with us, this person known as the Antichrist is not revealed yet. 
You know, this word antichrist occurs in the Bible only in the letters of John. And in those letters of John, it only appears five times in four different verses. But even though the word is used infrequently, it's interesting, as you go through the Bible and take a look at the, this whole picture of this man known as the Antichrist, he's just spoken of very little here in 1 John. Actually, the books of Daniel and Revelation and other books speak much more about this man. I mean, in Daniel chapter 7, he's called the little horn. In Daniel chapter 8, he's called the king of fierce countenance. In Daniel chapter 9, he's called the prince who shall come. In Daniel chapter 11, he's called the willful king. In John chapter 5, Jesus calls him the one who comes in his own name. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he's called the son of perdition, the man of sin, and the lawless one. And essentially, this Antichrist is a world dictator who leads humanity in what seems to be a golden age until he shows his true colors and the judgment of God is poured out upon him and on his empire immediately before the return of Jesus Christ. My friends, I'm just telling you that we should take notice because the world stage is set for the, uh, this emergence of a political and economic superman a single political leader to organize a world-dominating confederation of nations. Our political leaders have spoken to us about a new world order, but nobody's really been able to define it, much less lead it. But that leader is coming. I think we need to understand, too, that the Antichrist isn't just a leader, isn't just a political and, and economic savior, but he also has around him a personality cult. He's going to demand worship from the world. And friends, I tell you that our world is being conditioned right now today to receive a man and to have this kind of personality cult. You see it today in the United States of America and what can only be termed as sick. Friends, we have a sick thing in our culture where we worship celebrities. Well, because some guy's an actor on a screen that suddenly I should care about how he dresses or where he eats or who he's going out with. I don't care. Or, or that I should care about what he thinks about political or religious or anything else. He's just a guy in front of a camera. But our celebrity culture feeds this worship of celebrities. And when that's combined in a political context... My friends, in our century, we've seen men like Lenin and Stalin and Mao, who in their nations of hundreds of millions of people, virtually every room in that nation has a photograph or a picture of that person up on the wall so that the watchful eye of the political leader is on them. And it's a sense of worshiping the political leader. My friends, all these developments should make us understand that the Antichrist is ready to be revealed when the moment is right. Now, I have to add something else at this point. I know that there may be some people here who are a little more unfamiliar with what the Bible says about these things regarding the end times. And for those people, I may be raising more questions than answering them and the things I bring up right now, but I'm going to risk it just because I need to let everybody know what I believe about this. I do believe that, that the Bible says that this political and economic leader is coming and that he'll be a religious leader as well. And my estimation from looking at the political and social scene of our day, I think he's coming, is not far off. My friends, I don't believe that we'll be here to see his emergence. See, I believe the Bible tells us very plainly 
that the church, that true Christians, that the body of Christ will be caught up to the Lord in heaven before the genuine emergence of this man known as the Antichrist. He'll come on the scene by making a dramatic uh, diplomatic treaty with the uh, nation of Israel and with the surrounding nations, and he'll be priest to the Middle East. And Wouldn't that be great in the world today? That won't be his only accomplishment, but it'll be a big line on his resume. He brought peace to the Middle East, and when he makes this covenant, this treaty with the nation of Israel, the Bible says that the last period of human history on this earth, as we know it, kicks into place. The Bible refers to it as the 70th week of Daniel, when the prince who shall come makes a covenant with the many, with the people of Israel. And so, my friends, the Bible tells us this, and I believe it also teaches us that Christians won't be on the earth, that we'll be taken away, taken up to meet with God, to be with Him, taken out of this earth before that comes. And I say that just to say this. My friends, I'm not looking for the Antichrist. I'm looking for Jesus Christ. You know, I mean, I think we should be educated about these things. I think we should know what the Bible teaches about this so that we can know for ourselves, so that we can tell other people and warn other people to come but I don't expect to be dealing with the Antichrist. My eyes and my hope, my blessed hope is set on looking for Jesus Christ who is to come. And that's what the Bible teaches us, and and we need to understand. Now, John touches on another point here in verse 19, which is relevant to the idea of the spirit of Antichrist being abroad in the culture. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out manifest that none of them were of us. In other words, many of these antichrists who went out were at one time part of the Christian community. And John says there were individuals in our Christian community who had this spirit of antichrist, but it was evident that they weren't really of us because they went out from us. And John's saying this was an identification that we could know that they weren't really of us because they went out from us. They weren't with us ever really to begin with. Now I need to make a point very clear, and I ask for your attention on this point because this could be a place of huge misunderstanding. You understand that what John's saying, when these people left the community of Christians, it was a demonstration of the fact that they were never really Christians to begin with. Now please understand what John is not saying here. John is not talking about someone who leaves one church to go to another good church. He's talking about those who leave the community of God's people altogether. And this reveals that they were never really part of God's people to begin with. We can imagine the scene. There's some controversy among people at a church, and someone responds by saying, I'm so sick of all this. This church and all churches They're just a bunch of hypocrites. I don't need any of this. I can follow God my own way. And then they leave. They leave not just a church, but they leave any kind of church. And we can fairly say that this person does not appear to be a Christian. And their appearance demonstrates that they were never really a Christian. Now, friends, we recognize that only God knows for sure. And only God can read what's really on a person's heart. Only God knows finally in the end those who are his and those who are not. But we can look at appearances. And the appearance is that they weren't trusting in Jesus Christ, that they were trusting in in the church or trusting in their own good works, but they weren't really trusting in Jesus. You see, my friends, if people are really trusting in Jesus, then the common ground that they have in Jesus is greater than any of the disputes that might come up from among them. 
That's what it means to really trust in Jesus. It means you love Jesus and I love Jesus. And even if you and I have a dispute, our common love of Jesus is greater than any dispute that we might be having with any other Christians. But friends, I just need to give you a word of warning here. You need to beware of those folks who are so spiritual, and I say spiritual in a sarcastic way here, you need to beware of those folks who are so spiritual that they just can't get along in any church. You see those people from time to time. You know what I mean? Again, I'm speaking sarcastically. They're so gifted, so prophetic, so spiritual, that they're just getting kicked out of every church that they go to or leaving in a huff from every church that they belong to. And finally, they're just left to themselves. And they seem happy enough with that, because after all, fellowship with themselves is at least fellowship with someone as spiritual as they are. You need to watch out for that, because there's something seriously wrong with such so-called spirituality. My friends, a healthy church is able to purge itself of poisons, just like a healthy body. And I think that we should endeavor to have a church that does two things. I think that ideally a community of Christians, a congregation, is a place, first of all, where people feel welcome and and invited and, and they feel at home when they first come in. Even somebody who's a terrible sinner. You know, the kind of person who says, I can't walk in there, the roof will fall in, you know? They say, well, come on in, you'll find out the roof will fall in, you'll be welcome here. I think that the church should be an open, inviting, engaging place for anybody. You're welcome here. By the same token, I think that the message preached at that church should be so biblical and so straight on the mark and so reflective of God's love and grace and and character that after a while, a person who sits in the pew week after week has to say, you know what, man? I either got to get right with God or get out of this place. It's too much. I think that's the ideal thing. I think there's something wrong with the church. If a person can be in open rebellion and sin against God and just feel just fine going there week after week. You know, it's just months, year after year, and hey, everything's great. I love going there. Well, you know, the, the, the light of God's word needs to shine upon our hearts and, and set us straight. Well, John's going to go on for us here in verse 20 and speak about another thing that we need to to understand here. He says, but you have an anointing from the Holy One and you know all things. Did you notice that? Who's John speaking to? Is he speaking just to the other apostles? Is he speaking just to pastors? Is he speaking just to church leaders? No, he's speaking to everybody. And he says, but you have an anointing. I think that's remarkable. John speaks of a common anointing belonging to all believers, an anointing that makes discernment possible for those who seek it in the Lord. My friends, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you've been born again, my friends, you have an anointing, you have access to the Spirit of God who will give you discernment if you will seek Him for it. The problem isn't that Christians don't have discernment, it's that they don't seek discernment. God has given it to them, He's given them this anointing. I think we need to understand what this idea of anointing is all about. You know, when the New Testament speaks of anointing, it speaks of it as the common property of all believers. Although it's true that a believer may not be walking in the anointing that God has given them, the New Testament does not speak of a special anointing given to particular individuals. And this is why I talk about this. 
is because in some circles in the church today, this idea of anointing is a really big deal. You see, among some Christians today, there's a rather magical or superstitious approach to the whole idea of anointing. In their mind, the anointing is like a virus or like a germ that can be spread by casual contact or can infect a whole group. I mean, I've heard preachers say, I went to the grave of this famous evangelist and I felt the anointing coming to me from the grave. Well, good heavens, friends, that's magic or superstition. That's not biblical Christianity. Pretty people, you know, I touched him and I caught the anointing. My friends, I don't know what you're talking about, but it's not talking about biblical Christianity. And usually this folks, uh, these folks can be told that, or can be identified. You can see what they're like because they think that when someone catches the anointing, well, you know when somebody's caught the anointing because they start acting really weird. First thing is they start talking differently. I have the anointing, brother. You know, and they get this weird inflection in their voice, and then their gestures get really big, and weird stuff starts happening. I don't know what that is, but friends, it's not the anointing. It's not the Bible's idea of the anointing. The idea of anointing is literally to be blessed with oil, and oil being emblematic here of the Holy Spirit. You see, anointing has the idea of being filled with and blessed by the Holy Spirit, And this is something that's a common property of all Christians, but it is something that we can and should be more submitted to and more responsive to. The issue isn't you getting the anointing. The issue is you walking in the anointing that God has given you because you've you've received it from Jesus Christ. Now I want you to notice this too. Because of the anointing of the Holy Spirit given to all believers, they possess the resources for knowing the truth. Did you see that in verse 20? But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. You have discernment because the Spirit of God has given it to you. Now, friends, I I just need to say that many of us need to awaken in our hearts the sense of discernment that God has already given us. God has given you discernment, but you're not using it. When something comes your way, you're not taking that moment out to say, Lord, give me discernment in this. Is this from you, or is this a distraction? Is this a diversion? And if you'll seek God about those things, He's given you the anointing, and He'll give you the discernment that you need to be guided in these situations. I tell you, there's a wrong teaching that's come from this verse, though. If you take a look carefully at verse 20, it says, You have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. Well, I've met some of those Christians who know all things. And basically what they mean by that is I know all things and I don't need you or anybody else to teach me there, mister. And some people are like that. You know, I just need me and my Bible. And the real stuff I need, the real blessing I get, I don't get it from any man. Not a man who's dead speaking to me through a book, not a man on a cassette tape, not a preacher. I get it just from God. And I don't need you, preacher. It's just me and God and I know all things. Friends, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit will guide us into all truth. And I believe that with all of my heart. But the Holy Spirit will guide us into all truth through many different means. He'll guide us into all truth as we spend time in the Word of God for ourselves. But He'll also guide us into all truth through using gifted teachers and preachers in the body of Christ. Could you imagine walking up to the Apostle John and saying, John... Uh, Listen, you just told me that the Holy Spirit would guide me into all truth. I guess I don't need to read your book anymore. John, after he was done slapping you around, no, John wouldn't do that. He was too loving. But John, after he had set you straight on that matter, he would explain to you, listen, listen, yes, the Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth, 
But some of the resources for knowing the truth that God will give you are the teachers and preachers that the Lord has brought into the body of Christ. Now, what's the truth that he'll guide us into? Look at verse 21. He says, I've not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Now there's two very, very important points here. First of all, John gives us a marker, doesn't he? He says you can know if somebody's for real. You can know if somebody's true. If somebody is teaching the truth by whether or not they deny that Jesus is the Christ. If somebody denies that Jesus is the Christ, and of course, you understand the word Christ means Messiah. If somebody denies that Jesus is the Messiah, well, you know, right off. They're not walking in the truth. They're not living in God's truth. My friends, we live in a very confusing age. We live in a confusing age where many people will say, oh, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah as I define Messiah. No, my friends, what John is saying isn't just that somebody is willing to say those words, Jesus is the Christ, or Jesus is the Messiah. He's saying you can know somebody is from God by whether or not they say that Jesus is the Messiah according to what the Bible means by Messiah. And that's why he brings in there the relationship between the Father and the Son. In the biblical understanding of the Messiah, the Messiah wasn't just somebody who uh, accomplished something good for mankind. He's the very image of the Father. There's that connection between the Father and the Son. The Messiah who is fully God and fully man. The Messiah who perfectly revealed God the Father to us. And John will say flat out that he is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. The spirit of the Antichrist defines itself, or identifies itself, I should say, by its denial of Jesus and denial of the Father. Did you notice those words in verse 23? Striking, aren't they? Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. John is repeating an idea that Jesus expressed often as recorded in the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John, chapter 12, Jesus said, listen to this. He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who believes in me believes not, excuse me, and he who sees me sees him who sent me. Jesus is saying it's not all about me, I'm showing you what God the Father's like. And then he said in John chapter 13, He who receives me, receives him who sent me. My friends, I think this is an important point for you and I as we go out in this world around us. Because oftentimes we meet people who say something like this. And you may be saying this this morning, and I want to speak to you if this is where your heart is. Oftentimes it's thought, listen, we're all worshiping the same God. You have one name for him, I have another name for him, but we're all talking about the same God, it doesn't matter. It's just different roads to the same God, because we all have the same God. Now friends, is that true? That we all serve the same God? That the Buddhist, the Muslim, the Christian, the uh, animist worshipping in the forest, Are they all worshiping the same God? 
My friends, here's the question to ask in response. You just simply ask this question. Was your God perfectly revealed in Jesus Christ? If your God was perfectly revealed in Jesus, in other words, if you say, look at Jesus, and that's your God. If your God was perfectly revealed in Jesus, then we have the same God. Because that's the God of the Bible. If your God is not perfectly revealed in Jesus, then they don't have the same God as the Bible. Or they don't have the same God as Christians have. Friends, this is a difficult point for many people. Because there are many people who are rather spiritual, yet reject Jesus Christ. And while their religion, or while their spirituality, may do them much good in this life, it may provide them a moral framework, it may help them to give up certain habits that are destructive to their lives, it may help them to have a happy family life. While there are many people for whom their religion or their spirituality does them much good in this life, If we're not worshiping the God who is really there, it will do us nothing for eternity. And one day we're going to have to stand before that God and give an account. I'm here to tell you, friends, there's not different heavens. There's not one heaven for this God, another heaven for that God. Whatever God you believe in, you go to their heaven. Friends, there's one God, the God of the Bible, the God who is perfectly revealed in Jesus Christ. Now let me conclude this with one point of application that I I trust will... Well, it hit somebody's life here. Sometimes people get into the habit of thinking that Jesus is one thing and God the Father is another thing. In other words, they read the Gospels and they say, oh, wow, I love this Jesus. Look at the love. Look at the wisdom. Look at the power. Look at the compassion. Look at the grace. Look at the forgiveness. I love this Jesus. And then they say, I'm so glad that I don't have to deal with that mean old God the Father. My friends, this is a stumbling point for many people. And they're looking to Jesus. Jesus, shield me from that angry God. My friends, I'm here to tell you that Jesus and all that love and all that compassion and all that grace and mercy has perfectly revealed to you what God the Father's like. You know why I say that to you? Because there are some people, and undoubtedly there's some people here this morning, you've been holding back in your relationship with God, trying to protect yourself. You know what that's like, don't you? Most of us have done it in a romantic relationship to some degree or another, where you have a romantic relationship with somebody, but you really hold back in the relationship because you know if you give yourself too much, you'll get burned. You're afraid of that. Maybe you've been burned before and you say, listen, I'm not going to, you know, I'll give this much, but no more because I don't want to get burned by this. Some people do that in their relationship with God. They don't really trust Him. They don't really know Him. And they think, you know, I'm not so sure of this guy, so I'll just give him some, but not all. Can I just tell you this morning that you can free your life from the burden of thinking that there's two different gods in heaven. No, my friends, God the Father is perfectly revealed in God the Son. And the same love and grace and compassion that you see in Jesus, that's in the heart of God the Father. You can draw close to Him this morning without any kind of hindrance or obstacle. You can give Him your all. So let's pray and ask God to do that work in our hearts.